0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking Transport, the AOTPM podcast. Before we get underway, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to our first episode, which had some really good responses. We had over 130 listeners from all over the world, obviously from Australia, but also from the UK, New Zealand, Algeria, India, and the United States. So thank you all for listening, and I encourage you to hit subscribe if you like what we're doing. Today, we're going to be chatting with a few different people. and First off, joining me is Clements Chan. Clements, how are you today?
1: Hey, good, thanks. How are you, Tim?
0: Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Uh, Clements was the uh, 2018 Young Professionals Award winner from Victoria. Uh, Clements, why don't you just give a bit of a brief introduction about who you are and what
1: you do? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, my name's Clement Chan. Um... As Tim said, I am currently working at Listic Consulting and I studied at Monash University uh, doing a degree in civil engineering and science. Um, As Tim already mentioned, I won the award for um, the Victorian Young Professionals Award this year. So yeah, very glad to be here, Tim.
0: Yeah, no, thanks, Clemens, for joining us. It's always good to uh, connect with the young professionals in our industry. Obviously, we're all the, the next phase of um, the profession, and we need to continue that professional development forward. So I'm going to ask you as well, I'm going to talk to you for a little bit. How did you get interested in transport? Was there a moment at university that made you realize that, hey, this thing's pretty cool, and I want to do
1: it for the rest of my career? Yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so pretty much, um, yeah, during my unit, actually, it was my final unit. To be honest, it's, um, it made me realize that there's a, there's a lot going on that I want to change. And so, for example, we're, we're a very car-dependent society in Australia, and I, I want to change that. And I think this is um, the way to go, and, and I've started my career in, in transport, and I've, to be honest, never looked back. As part of your award, you got complimentary
0: attendance at the 2018 National Conference in Perth, uh, which was recently held at the end of July. It was the biggest conference that AATPM have ever had. What were your favorite parts of the
1: conference? Oh, there's actually so many parts I, w- I would like to mention, but my, my absolute favorite part was when John Kerry, one of the parliament members, actually started uh, talking about uh, passionately talking about the issues that Perth was facing. And I thought that was. That was very enlightening and, you know, I, I want to see more of those kind of people in Parliament passionate about transport, passionate about change, identifying issues rather than uh, being complacent at, at where we are. So, yeah, that, that was my absolute favourite part. It was right at the start, but, I mean, the whole conference was great. That was just um, a highlight of the conference for me. Finally, last question for you, Clemens.
0: Yep. Do you have any words of encouragement that you would give to Young transport planners, traffic engineers, about getting involved with AITPM, furthering themselves in the industry, and potentially one day entering the Young Professionals Award.
1: Yeah, certainly, Tim. Um, I, I think yeah, you, you've got really got nothing to lose by joining AITPM, going to the national conference, and and actually yeah, you get so much in return. I've learned a lot. I, I've met a lot of great people, including Tim. And yeah, just go for it. I, I think when I got the email about the Young Professionals Award, I, I didn't even think twice. I just applied for it and, and lucky enough, I got it. So do your best and yeah, you've really got nothing to lose and, and a lot to gain. Yeah, it's such a great opportunity for those new to the industry. Uh, it's, it's a
0: great way to make initial connections and get to know a whole bunch of people. And that, that's how I got involved with AOTPM two years ago. And now I'm doing this. So thank you, Clements, for coming on and talking to us today. You mentioned a lot about the conference, and I just encourage everyone that if you did go to the conference, if you didn't go to the conference, both head to aatpm.com.au. All the conference photos are now online. You can access all the papers from the conference and uh, check out what what you missed if you didn't go. And also submit your abstract for the 2019 National Conference, which will be held in Adelaide. Uh, We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, David Brown will be talking to Paul Steely-White and Dr. Ryan Falconer. Like to take the opportunity now to acknowledge our wonderful national sponsors of AATPM. First of all, the national platinum sponsors OzTraffic and WSP, as well as our national sponsors Cardno, Smec, Safer Roads, Peachlister Consulting, Matrix Traffic and Transport Data, and Connexus Transport Advisory. Yeah. If you're interested in checking out any of the sponsorship opportunities that AATPM can offer, including this podcast, uh, head to aatpm.com.au. And once again, thank you to all of our amazing sponsors. We're now going to change a little bit, and um, we're going to listen to some interviews that David Brown conducted immediately after the conference. First of all, we'll hear David talking to Paul Steely-White, and Paul Steely-White was uh, one of the keynote speakers at the conference. He uh, was one of the first presentations as part of the opening, and he is the Executive Director of Transport Alternatives in New York City.
2: Paul, the other day you managed to get a one-on-one meeting with uh, what you might be your nemesis in New York. Uh, that's very good. How did you manage to do that?
3: Well, you know, Governor Cuomo, depending on the day, can either be our ally or our, our nemesis. You know, as advocates in New York City, which is a very tough town, you've got to really use every tool in the box. <laughs> So on that particular day, I was arrested with a number of other people for blocking the street outside Governor Cuomo's office. We were trying to get his attention so that he would put his political might behind extending and expanding our very successful speed safety camera program. But you know, on any given day, we might be issuing research or policy papers or doing some you know media work, legislation and, and lobbying, but sometimes you really just have to put it on the line. And so standing there in the street, with mothers who'd lost kids due to speeding drivers is something I would do again, you know, in a heartbeat. And in that case, it was a bit of a stunt. You know, we were out there trying to get attention, trying to get the governor's attention. And as you point out, the very next day, we had our meeting and it was a a moment, I think, for us to put this on the governor's radar in uh, a very forceful way. But
2: it's not the only armory or the artillery that you've got. It, It was one, the right one for the right time.
3: It, precisely. you know, And so I think we have a pretty diverse toolbox at my organization and in our movement in New York. And as you point out, the trick is knowing when to use the right tool at the right time. I've heard it best described as you're trying to create an orchestra. Because as an advocate, you're a one-note band. You know, People know my point of view on things. But when I'm using my energy to build a coalition of business and health and other interests, and they're saying it, It really is the orchestra that can, uh, as my friend said, makes politicians get up and dance. A one-note band does not. And so the success of our organization, our movement in New York, I think has had a lot to do with the extent to which we have been able to reach outside our own comfort zone and empower and activate new voices for people-friendly streets. I'll come on to that very strongly. I think there's some things. But where was he coming from, the governor? I think it's true everywhere that, politics are difficult, and that often it's not the issue at hand, it's other issues that are influencing the issue, or it's a history of distrust and dysfunction, as is the state state with our state government. I think for Cuomo, it was him not prioritizing this issue as something to push through the state legislature. So in this case, it was just a matter of elevating the issue to up the priority chain so that he was expending his precious political capital to... uh, you know, wrangle it through the legislature. So I don't think that's particularly unique in the world. I'm sure, you know, similar dynamics Mm. elsewhere. But I do think that right now what we have in New York is uniquely dysfunctional in that there is virtually nothing happening within our state legislature. It's like really at a standstill. Nothing's getting through. Nothing's getting passed. And this has to do with a long history of very complicated politics between the Democrats and Republicans in this interstitial body called the... uh, this independent caucus but that's neither here nor there i I think the the point is that in order to make traffic transportation safety an issue you've really got to fight and right now i think we are in a place in new york where the state of our streets the state of our transportation system is right up there with education housing other big issues, and that wasn't always the case. It's also part of those things, too, really, isn't it? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. It connects all of those things. And, and so that's one of the points we strive to make. And really using our crises in creative ways. I mean, uh, right now, one of our main subway lines is about to be shut down for 18 months for repairs. It was damaged during Hurricane Sandy, one of the critical tunnels under the East River connecting Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so it's an opportunity to see what the streets can really do when they are designed and managed for efficiency, for the throughput of people and not just cars. And so we have convinced both the Department of Transportation and the uh, MTA, Transit Authority, to undertake a people way solution where, that's what we call it, it's a marketing term, but to really take the arterial streets that are parallel to the subway above ground and completely reorient them around buses, Bicycles and people on foot, and so this will be a big moment for New York City streets, and hopefully we will prove the uh, efficacy of these new approaches that could be applicable to non-crisis scenarios or non-sort of urgent crisis scenarios, and hopefully forge a new model for uh, all of our all of our big streets. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that that kind of um, crisis is facing Perth right now, but certainly there are moments when. There are, are challenges, and it's an opportunity to prove some new approaches. Legacy. Thank you. Yeah.
2: yeah, get a legacy out of it. Yeah, and
3: it's also it's an opportunity. So it's not just running
2: a train system; it's moving people.
3: Yep. And I don't know if it's the case here, but you know we're not building very many new train lines. You know, it's mm. it's it's too capital intensive, and we don't have the money for it. So it's more and more it's going to be about to squeeze more efficiency out of our existing surface network.
2: The trouble with Building, if I may use that word, train lines, is that quite often you can only afford to build a project. You can't afford to build a system. Yes. You, can't, you can't expand it wide enough. Yeah. One of the, the papers that came up here in the AITPM conference talked about the great opportunity of local trips. That our whole, uh, much of the public debate is about the long trip. Sure, sure. But the local trip has an immense I saw opportunity. That. I
3: saw that, and I thought it was a, a really terrific point, because I think what the public often hears when you're pushing, biking, and walking is uh, oh you, um, you're expecting me to like you know bike or walk you know 20 k's every day or whatever and so what we discovered early on in new york was that an enormous share of driving trips and even transit trips were like very bikeable and walkable very short you know something like 45 percent of driving trips were like under two and a half k's or something and so we told the public look we're, we're, that's what we're focused on here you know and, and and we're not trying to tell everyone they have to get to their cars for these longer trips and by the way the more we get people out of their cars for those short trips, if you do still drive, they're going to be out of your, out of your way, you know. So, and that's a great point that we've gotten some traction with, you know, because without our public transit system and the biking and walking that we have now, you would not be able to drive in New York City, period, right? And so really, it's recognizing that sort of ecosystem that we have on our streets and getting beyond the sort of modalism, if you will, where it becomes drivers against bikers against pedestrians and the rest and recognizing that, in a way, it's already a a multi-modal environment. Even if you only drive or only take those other modes, there's still this interdependence at work. And moving forward, generationally, we're seeing this trend towards not identifying as a particular kind of transportation, but as someone who will use all of those modes within a week, or even a day. Mobility as a service, not being locked into a mode. Yes, I interviewed someone else...
2: Ryan uh, Falconer fr- mm. who presented on that, and I'm doing a paper on that as well. Oh, nice. You know, that is a notion that we have been locked into the past, history, our you know culture and whatever. Yeah. I, I If I always had a car, the only decision I make in a new trip is which route to take and where to park. Right, right.
3: Whereas the decision might be, well, hang on, there are alternatives. Sure. Which are cheaper, easier, you know, a whole range well, of things. Well, this trend uh, you know, that you point out, David, is you know, the private sector is is rushing ahead. You know, uh, Uber just bought a bike share company in the States and Lyft just bought, uh, Uber's competitor just bought um, our bike share concern in, in New York City, which also runs bike shares around the country. And so you can tell there's this race to be first to market with this, you know, multimodal uh, platform that, as you suggest, will be the sort of ultimate mod- mobility as a service where, where they will integrate transit options as well. So that's clearly where it's going and so I think it's it's high time our streets reflect this new reality.
2: My paper talked about the fact that if we are gonna share vehicles more, we're not talking enough in Australia of building units with bus base or yep. you know, or pod base. Don't don't think of it just that, you know, as yep. shared vehicle base. So that you know, that people can stop and actually go to a to a location. Does this go to the point you raised earlier about it not being just seen as one person with one view? Your earlier point is that there's a whole range of people. I'm not saying you have to get lycra and ride a bike at <laughs> right. a, a million miles an hour. Right. Is that part of an important part that it's not you're not just being seen as, say, the bike lobby?
3: No, and I think I think that's the point that I, I hope we've arrived at where, where we are seen as a voice for really um, not just bicycling but certainly walking and also the proliferation of new, smaller, nimble electric vehicles that we're seeing all over the place now. That seems to be just like coming at us very quickly where there's several different models of these small battery-charged vehicles from scooters to self-balancing wheels to skateboards, you know, all electric, electric-powered or some combination of human and electric power, and so the question then 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 becomes: is this, is this a good thing for our city, or is is it not? And so there's a big debate right now in New York where oh, the, some of these things are cluttering up the street, or they're making the streets disorderly or dysfunctional. And we're saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, they're all going below 30 k's. They're small. They're not taking up a lot of room. Yeah, there's a little bit of clutter, but look at the clutter that we have from automobiles. <laughs> like they're taking the lion's share of the space. So. I think we all have to sort of adjust our uh, concept of what a city street is and recognize that really at the end of the day, it's about encouraging these more nimble, efficient, spatially smart modes of travel. And it's all coming, you know, very quickly. So I think us as transportation advocates or planners or engineers learning some new tricks about curbside management, building it into our design to say we're going to reserve that space for, you know, for loading, for pickup drop off, for parking these nimble vehicles. And so I think that that will help chip away at this conception that streets are just for does that get
2: back to the narrative then that it's but it's not just technology it's technology for a sake it's technology as a tool and the narrative then becomes this culture the street as a culture rather than just a destination
3: absolutely and and what i what i heard and what you just said david is also related i think for me to this notion that we are and i think it's a it's a it's an erroneous notion that we are somehow engaging in social engineering right that that we that we have a point of view about the street and we're pushing it on everybody else and what i like to remind people of is that what we've had for the last 100 years is social engineering we've we've basically engineered out every other mode of travel because the car had just become so dominant so these are always decisions that are being made there's always a value associated with these decisions they're never objective And that's when it really is incumbent upon our elected leaders to articulate a vision for for our streets and for our city. What kind of city do we want to live in? Do we want to be completely tethered to the automobile or do we want a city of choice? So I've been encouraged by some of what I've heard this week from from John Kerry and some others about trying to define where we're going. You know, because we have to make choices and there are trade-offs and that's where political leadership comes in you'll hear david brown talking
0: to dr ryan falconer who is currently the city's leader in w and western australia for arab he has a phd in sustainability and technology policy
2: i caught up with him immediately after his presentation and began by asking if mobility as a service was really just another name for uber
4: no not at all it's a very broad ecosystem and i think If you take a bit of time to look and and sort of evaluate that ecosystem, you realize it's broadening out both in terms of the vendors in that market and also the types of services that they're offering. That is a very dynamic environment and it's it's expanding very rapidly.
2: And that variety of services might be bikes that you could
4: hire for a short trip and then link to the railway station, for example? That would be a good example and it ranges from specific vendors who offer a physical service that you generally would pay for through subscription or more commonly through pay-as-you-go right through to -to peer-to-peer networks which are less a vendor situation more of a i have an asset i'm not using it do i have an opportunity for someone to pay me to use it under a sort of a a de facto rental agreement
2: it might be that i don't own a car or if i do i make it available for some people to be able to rent for example
4: absolutely and there's possibilities around bicycles uh, possibilities around parking spaces and the thing about
2: mass is that you can link together them it's not as if it's just I have to make a decision to get one mode of transport.
4: That's certainly put forward as the allure of, of mass as, a, as an ecosystem is this idea that you can very dynamically choose your modes of transport based on your particular condition at a time, trip purpose and all these other variables.
2: Governments seem to be very happy about it when private industry provides a service which doesn't cost government, what doesn't appear to cost government, certainly in the short term. Do you think that's some of the reasons why planners and and governments and that seem to have embraced the Ubers and others
4: of the world rather happily? I think that's part of it. I think there's a bit of a deer in the headlights situation. Technology and its luster, this new thing, uh, and this opportunity to really augment the existing system, uh, the conventional movement and mobility system, An ability for the private sector to fill gaps that traditionally, let's say, the public sector has found it very hard to fill itself through new service offerings and technology being the platform to enable this to happen.
2: But it's not just filling the gaps. That can be part of the problem. Your experience in North America?
4: My experience is that uh, when it comes to service vendors, the private sector doing the gap filling or essentially more broadly providing the service, Their interest is not going to be, in most cases, just limited to filling the gaps that the public sector would like the private sector to fill. That is not their MO. Their MO, and therefore their value set, is quite different and more broad than that. And that's where some of the tensions start.
2: Their value, it's quite legitimate for a private company to want to maximise profit maximising profit doesn't necessarily maximise community fairness or broad benefit.
4: That's true and it's not a, it's not always self-interested either because in the case of say more well-known ride-hailing companies, it's not necessarily in their interest to go out there and no. say we are here for profit, we want to just provide a service which is for the public good and we're happy to have a limited market share. It's a complex situation where the marketing angle has to be made right, so it strikes that balance between, if you like, we're in this for ourselves, we're in this for the public good. Where, where's that sort of sweet spot? That's
2: and a tough so, question. government policy. We've talked in a previous AITPM event where Uber was present, and I'm not just picking on Uber, but they are very common a generic market. almost name for yeah, things. That's right. That we've spoken to them that there may be government regulations or requirements that don't maximise their profit, but are important for us to allow them or whoever to operate.
4: Yeah, look, I think that's true. And again, I think we get back to this difference between selfish, purely profit-driven enterprise and self-interested, which still from a private sector point of view means we care about our bottom line, but we look after that bottom line in a manner that doesn't alienate the people we want to work with. And a recognition that a degree of support is required from the public sector to potentially maximize value and that's where i think there's a lot of confusion in industry exactly where that sweet spot is have we not given enough attention as to what it might look like when it's working no not at all in my view uh, i think there is certainly in australia and i've seen this a little bit in north america through experience uh, i think a bit of a uh, an approach from government to sit, sit back a bit and say to the private sector, you come up with your model and you tell us what that looks like. We will try and assess for ourselves if that makes sense and we'll, we'll prototype it. So that operating framework isn't one that I see government embracing enough and actually shaping enough. In, obviously, in concert with the private sector, there's too much sort of sitting back and letting the private sector come up with the, with the, the initial playing field
2: we could end up going down the track and find we've gone a long way in a direction that is not the most desirable.
4: That's right, so for example, if there was a a partnership that said, uh, we'll give a a sort of contract, an operating contract to a private vendor to take care of a certain trip market, for example, station connections, um, that might introduce uh, more ridership to that vendor, that would be purposeful and something that uh, would reflect a KPI the public sector had set. At the same time, those new riders come to experience the convenience and so forth of the service being provided and promoted by the public sector and they start using that service for other trips. Now, as the public sector, I don't think you can set an operating framework as part of a partnership agreement and say, you can only have the trips we tell you you can have because the private sector is not going to accept that. That's the problem, that point of control.
2: The point is we don't want a good railway line undermined by a whole pile of people, even travelling in cars, even if they're two or three in
4: the car each time. Absolutely. And look, I, I am firmly of the belief that there is a overwhelming need for high quality uh, mass public transport. Um, there's a, a fundamental issue around urban physics and the ability to move people in volume. And uh, in a lot of cases, I don't think that these sort of small scale mobility services can take over that major people movement role. It's not a physical possibility, but there are certainly more marginal cases where indeed that is a potential. And if the public sector is assisting in some way, the private sector to gain market share, then you don't have that control over the trips that people are going to choose to make that might not be in that public good and inverted commas.
2: The thing is too, that you mentioned key performance indicators, Mm Part of that is knowing the information, a private company is not keen to let you know exactly what their performance indicators are, they tend to be commercial information that they want to
4: keep to themselves. Yeah, that's true and I can see the reason for that, mm. uh, there's there's absolutely a commercial angle to that. but i don 't think we can shy away from the fact there's also um, there's data in there that paints a picture that perhaps in this time of we're all working together and sort of uh, public private partnership there's data in there that doesn't speak nicely to what that relationship mm. we, we hope that relationship really looks like mm. and it's no surprise then that some of these service providers are very guarded about that data.
2: Understandably, mm. but equally the government has a role to look after the broader community.
4: Absolutely, so the again there's a big unanswered question there about what is the must have when it comes to data to be able to sort of ring fence at least a baseline public good versus getting into territory where you are and potentially infringing on data that's commercial and confident
0: like to hear the full interviews and anything else that David does um, for both AATPM and uh, his own endeavours, head to drivenmedia.com.au for the full interviews and a whole bunch more transport news. Well, thank you, David. Uh, That just... Just about brings us to the end of today's show. The AOTPM membership is phenomenal value. Uh, You obviously get, as as well as the conference, each state runs technical seminars and networking events throughout the year, generally about 10 per year. Uh, So it's a really, really good value. If you liked what we're doing here and you enjoyed listening, make sure to uh, hit that subscribe button. We're available anywhere good podcasts are available or really anywhere where any podcasts are available. Um, also follow us online, so aitpm.com.au. We're also on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash AITPM. We're on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash AITPM66. Uh, you can tweet at us at AITPM2, get in touch, leave us some feedback, and we'll see you next time.